We're going to finish out the book of Hebrews today. Uh, now, we're going to finish the book of Hebrews, but we actually have one more week in the series better than. So uh, there's an additional piece that I'm going to kind of add on to what do we do after we go through the book of Hebrews. And that ties in with, again, next Sunday, we're going to have our, our vision meeting. Uh, so this is a, a gathering of the family to say, where, where are we going, family? What is this next year going to look like? So I really do hope that you guys would carve time out in your schedule to stick around after church. Again, we're going to have a meal uh, and so we can go through some information of collectively together, where, are, where is the family of Penn Valley heading and in, in what direction that is. So, um, so as I said, we're going to finish up the book of Hebrews. The author has spent a lot of time going through past history people, events, rituals. He's gone through all of this to help these Jewish Christians that are struggling in the midst of this time period in which they live. And again, everything that he's doing is calling them back to the righteousness and, and to, to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's, he's saying, look, if we go back and look at everything that we've understood, God has been leaving kind of these little breadcrumbs for you. So that way, when you get to the part where this Messiah that we're waiting for shows up, this guy, Jesus, that you guys would know exactly who it is because all of those crumbs that you've been finally following is now coming to fruition. Well, the problem is the Israelites struggle with understanding who Jesus is. And for a lot of us, we do as well, right? The, the aspect of sin in our lives blocks a lot of that understanding and that relationship that we have. And so as they're struggling, again, the author here is constantly pointing them back to Jesus and saying it is only in Jesus that we find salvation and nowhere else. And so the thought of going back to these old rituals, the thought of going back to this old Jewish lifestyle just will never suffice and not get you what it is that you're looking for, which again is that, that ultimate salvation. And so he's systematically pleading with them uh, and he's walking through this time and time again. And he's saying, remember this person, remember this person. And in, in the process, he interjects these, these five different warnings. And so what we see is really this heart of compassion and this reality of dread that exists. That he says, I want you to find Christ. That is my heart's desire. But you also have to understand that if you are going to choose to reject Christ, you will be left with eternal condemnation. Because again, only in Christ do we find salvation. And so last week we talked about this idea that he left us a choice, right? We, we talked about these two mountains. He's been building. Chapter 11 is all about this, this aspect of faith. And then he says, listen, we've got Mount Sinai, which is the law, uh, or we have Mount Zion, which is the dwelling of God. And which mountain are you going to stand upon? Are you going to try and work for your salvation through the law? Or are you going to stand upon the mountain that is Jesus Christ and worship and love him, and that is where you will find redemption. And so now as we come to chapter 13, what we're going to see is he's essentially kind of transitioned here and said, now the understanding is I'm talking to those who have chosen Mount Zion. Those who have chosen to stand upon Christ, 
What does that look like for us as believers? Okay, if we're going to make that distinction and say, yes, Jesus is my Lord, well, then what, what am I supposed to do with that? What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Okay, so he's, he's settled on that fact. So if you have your Bibles, you guys can open up to chapter 13. We're going to work through uh, chapter 13. Uh, So let me start here with uh, one through three. It says, keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated if you yourselves were suffering. Okay, so let me just stop there. So first off, he starts this whole thing with this idea that you are to keep loving each other as brothers, right? This is this, is this term phileo, or, 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 or what we call brotherly love, right? The city of Philadelphia. So when we say love in our context, love is a very generic type of word. But when we see the word love in Scripture, a lot of times there's these specific nuances uh, that when you use this phrase, this is what it means. So he says, look, you have to love one another with a deep-seated, brotherly, family type of love. A love that's going to have care for one another despite anything else that's going on. So he starts with that, and he says, the reason why we need this is because we're family, right? That, That you and I, as believers, have the same Heavenly Father, and we have the same home that awaits us in the future. And so because of that, we have to remain united as a family and function as a family and care for one another as a family would love each other. So that's kind of the overarching point as he starts to push through this passage of how it is that we need to start treating each other. So then he goes on and he says, do not forget to entertain strangers. Okay, so... When he he says that, in the the biblical world, that as Christianity is starting to spread, and we have these groups of missionaries going from one city and one region to another, many of them could have stayed in uh, at an actual inn. They existed in the ancient world. The problem with many of these inns was, one, they oftentimes were not very safe, and two, they were often places of immorality. And so the idea was... Don't don't stay there. These are not good places to be. But instead, you are to welcome them into your home. That is, people are traveling and you hear that a brother in Christ is making his way to his region. You should be opening your homes to them. And, And he goes on and he says, because you may be entertaining angels. So he's trying to impress the point here that this is not just open your home for them and have them sleep on the sofa. But what he's saying is, listen, you give up your bed to them. You stock the refrigerator for them. You provide for anything that they may possibly need because here they are trying to do the work of God and trying to spread the mission and the gospel of Christ that we want them to be as loved and cared for as they possibly can. Okay, so this is, again, this is the type of of offering that we're to, to be extending to one another in this time period. And then he goes on uh, and he says, look, remember the people in prison? We, we We need to care for them because they are suffering. 
right? We're in a time period where believers are being persecuted. That's part of the challenge. That's part of the, the, the address that he's got here. He says, I get that you're being persecuted. I get that you're being taken advantage of, and I get that you're being thrown in jail. And we have to remember our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that for the sake of their faith are being wrongly persecuted and imprisoned. And a reason why this was so important is because in the ancient world that when you were set into jail, it's not like jail today where you get a bed and three square meals and you have minor amenities. If you needed something, basically the Roman world looked and said, If you need food or you need a blanket, you better hope that your family shows up and gives it to you because we're not really going to bother that much. So it became imperative that other Christians were stepping out and caring for their fellow brothers and sisters because if they didn't care for them, certainly the Roman government was not going to do that for them. So the first three passages, he's establishing that if we are going to live and we are going to walk like Christ... We need to have a mindset that has others focused, that is others before myself, that I need to care and love for someone before I put my own needs first. Okay, So that's the first part that he establishes there as he goes through. And now we come to verse 4. He says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you nor will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So again, he's just elaborating a little bit more. What does it look like if we're going to follow Jesus? What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? So he says, listen, We have to keep the marriage bed pure. We we have to honor the sanctity of the vows that we make to one another. And when he uses that word there and he says, I'm going to judge the adulterer or the immoral, that is the word where we get pornos or pornea or the word pornography. That is a general concept of any sort of perversion that exists in that time. And the Roman world was full of all kinds of perversion. And so the author is saying, look, this is all the stuff that you are seeing on a day-to-day. This is just part of normal culture. And what I'm calling you to is to say, you are not to be a part of that. And I'll tell you what, we live in a day and age right now where the culture has perverted the word of God. There is all kinds of immorality that exists And the world is constantly calling us to say, join us, be a part of this. It's okay. And as Christians and as the church, we are to firmly stand against that. And we are not to get in the marriage, into the the bed with culture. We are to remain pure and remain united to our marriage to the Lord and Savior. So he's saying, look, this is what we need to do, is we need to stand apart from the way that the world exists. Okay? And how do we do that? Again, we align ourselves to the word of God, and if it does not match the scriptures, then it is not part of who we are. And then he challenges them with the next part. And he says, you need to be free of money. You need to be content with what you have. 
Again, Rome was a city of opulence. It, it, it had all kind of wealth. It had, had temples and statues that were just overlaid with gold. And Rome got extremely wealthy by basically dominating and plundering its neighboring civilizations. And at this point, the same thing is starting to happen to Christians because we saw that in chapter 10. He talked about how their property was being taken from them. You know, when, when Caesar Augustus uh, took over as emperor in 27 BC, he began what was known as the Pax Romana, 200 years of peace and prosperity. This is where Rome really hits its stride and it just starts to conquer everyone in its path. And as it's conquering, money is just flowing into the city. And these emperors could do whatever they wanted. You want to build it? We're going to build it. And there's all these lavish lifestyles and parties. And it was, I mean, it was the golden age of Rome at this point. And it's very tempting for Christians in this time period to look around and see all of this wealth and not be lured into that type of lifestyle. And the author is saying, I get it. We all want a comfortable life. We all want to have a roof over our head and food on the table and enjoy the luxuries of life. But that's not what life is all about. And not only are they struggling with this, but remember, Rome is profiting off the Christians as well. So the temptation to fall into this world of greed is very strong at this moment. And so he says, look guys, anything you think that may be of any value or any worth will never compare to who Christ is. No amount of gold in your pocket will ever suffice what it's like to know who Jesus Christ is. So put the money aside and continue to live for Christ. And he just reminds them and he says, and what do we say about scriptures? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I do not need to be afraid. What can man do to me? That you are living in a time period where the world hates you. You are called to be different. I know it's hard, but God is with you and God is in this as you go through the struggles and trials of life. So it's okay. You will be fine. Continue to live for Christ. So he lays out just some general principles here. Now we get to verse 7. And he says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome, their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from those who minister at the tabernacle who have no right to eat the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most high place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but looking for a city that is to come. Through Jesus... Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise and the fruit of lips that confess his name. 
And do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men must give an account. Obey them so that, they may, that their work may be a joy and not a burden, for that would be no advantage to you. So this, this, this part here, 7 through 17, is really like a big sandwich. We have the, the two loaves, of the two slices of bread that basically are, again, remember and obey your leaders and submit to them. Okay? So he's, he's bracketing all of this information here with this idea that you are to imitate your leaders and you are to submit to them. Now, whenever we hear that word submit and obey, that is hard for us as people. Because our heart has a natural tendency towards pride. Our heart has a natural tendency that says, I am God and nobody will ever dare tell me what I should do. And so when authority comes along, we are constantly resisting that authority because heaven forbid I ever submit myself to somebody in this world. And so as they are struggling... The leaders of their churches are stepping in and encouraging them and saying, guys, remain faithful, continue to follow Jesus. And the natural tendency is to say, well, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. So in this, he gives three reasons of why we should submit to the actual authority that exists. And so the first one is, he says, consider their outcomes, guys. Okay, you're, you're railing against those who are trying to help you. But let's just remember these leaders. Remember these missionaries and these groups of people that have gone before you and have spread the gospel. Do, do you see what they have done? They, they've gone overseas into different areas and different lands and they've preached the gospel. And as a result of preaching the gospel, people have come to know Jesus Christ. They are doing the work of God. And in the midst of doing it, they themselves have faced hardship. And in the midst of their hardship, they have remained faithful. And look at the life they lead. They continue to be prosperous, bearing fruit for the gospel. And that is what I want for you, is to endure and bear spiritual fruit for the kingdom as well. So that is the first reason why you should obey and submit. The second reason... He says, listen, let's consider their position. Yes, they are over you in authority. But we have to understand that they are not over you in terms of lording it with power, forcing you to do their bidding and to do their will. No, no, no. Their position is one of care and is one of love. They stand over you with your best interest in mind. And if you're concerned about that, he says, let me just take it a step further, that these individuals are going to have to give an account to their leadership, that they are going to stand before God one day and God is going to look at them and say, how did you lead my people? Did you lead my people the way that I called you to or did you selfishly lead them for your own good? And they will have to give an account for what they have done. And what he's saying is, is these leaders understand that. And they are taking this extremely seriously. And they are saying, I want to follow the ways of Christ. And that is how my leadership is going to coordinate in the way that I then love you. So you can have confidence 
that they are in your best interest in trying to spiritually help you. And then the third thing he says, he says, look, guys, your obedience is actually going to work out in your, your best interest. Your obedience is actually going to be a joy for you. I'm sure a lot of you have been in a position of leadership before, right? Leadership is not easy. It is hard. You're trying to move people in a direction that don't always want to move in that direction. And as the leader, it is your job to make sure they're doing what they are supposed to do. And, and, and as a leader, when you have like an employee that is not doing what they're doing, that is frustrating. You know, no leader comes in and goes, I'm so glad my employees are not being good employees today because all I want to do is yell at them and come down on them. No leader wants that. Every leader wants to come in and know that his people are doing what they're supposed to be doing and there's a harmonious relationship that exists because the benefit is that there is blessing on both sides because the leader walks away and he goes, you know what, that guy, he's a great employee. Man, he works so hard. He is, he, he is on the ball. He shows up on time. He does what he's supposed to do. The way that he interacts with people is great. <clears throat> and, and you know what happens? People like that, they get rewarded. Because every year, you have an evaluation. And the leader says, look, I've been grossly underpaying you. I'm going to give you a raise. The leader says, I want to take you out to lunch. You know, the leaders, when you show up and you're like, hey, I got to leave early. My kids are sick. The leader's like, oh, my gosh, you've never left early in your entire life. Go, whatever you need to do. That, that's the way it works. But when you fight against leadership, leadership doesn't have a choice but to come down with the consequences. And instead of having a great relationship, we destroy the relationship. So he says, look, just listen to what they're saying because they are there looking at your soul and trying to point you to Christ. Now, the reason why we follow these leaders above all is because what we get there in verse eight. Because see, these leaders are following Christ. That their leadership looks like the leadership of Jesus Christ. And if we are called to follow Christ, then we are to follow the leaders who are following Christ because they are following Christ, because that is what they are called to do. So if we are concerned about following these people, we shouldn't be. And so what does that mean to look and follow Christ? I love how he says Christ is, it never changes. He's always the same. God has always been a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. He has always been a God of righteousness and justice. I mean, wouldn't you love to have a boss like that? That you always knew no matter what the boss was always doing right? In every circumstance, he knew when to be gracious and he knew when to be firm. He knew when to love and when to throw his arms around you. He knew when to challenge you. God has always been that way. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. We don't have two separate gods that some people say the God of the Old Testament is just one of vengeance and the God of the New Testament is one of love. 
If we think that, that we've not understood the scriptures and we are not seeing that in both sides, God is both righteous and God is loving in both capacities. And so he says, you need to mimic that. That's what you need to do. You need to mimic the ever and never changing characteristics of who Jesus Christ is. And now that you're going to mimic it, what you also need to do is he says, you need to stick to the truth. Do not get carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Remember, they're living in the midst of Roman society and there's all kinds of paganism that exists. And all these people are like, we should go back to Judaism. And he's like, what are you talking about? These are ridiculous ideas. You must follow the word of God. And he says in there, he says, they they keep going back. And he says that those who eat of this, it has no value. Those who minister at this at this altar have no right to do so. And what he's saying is, he says, look, if you're going to go back into that lifestyle of Judaism and follow and adhere to the ceremonial rituals, you have no place at the throne of God. Because going back to that says, I can earn my salvation with God. And God says, you have already proven that you are a sinner and are condemned to die. So if you think that's the case, you are sadly mistaken. They have no place in the kingdom of God. And then he talks about this high priest. And we've talked a lot about how Jesus is the ultimate high priest. And he says, you know, when when they would make sacrifices, these offerings to God, they would then take the animals' bodies and they take them outside of camp and they would burn them. And and we see that in Leviticus and the book of Numbers. He talks about this idea. And the purpose of, of putting these bodies outside the camp was because it was a symbolic gesture that there's a separation between these two worlds. There, there is the holy and there is the vile. There is the clean and there is the unclean. And we take these bodies out from the holy and we take them over here and we burn them up. And that was a symbolic nature that your sins were being removed. And so he makes this connection then with Christ. And he says, remember, Christ was crucified outside the city. See, see, Christ's world was not this physical world. It was not Jerusalem. It was not the Roman Empire. He says, I have a kingdom that is completely different. And so as Christ was taken outside the kingdom to die for our sins, to separate the holiness of God from the sinfulness of this world, what is he telling us? He says, if you are going to follow Christ, then you are going to do the same and you are going to go outside this city and you are going to suffer the way that Christ suffered because this world is not our home and we have something better to look forward to. And as a result of all of this, this is how you are to live. What do we do? Verse 15 We continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess. We do good and we share with others. Here's how I'm supposed to live. Purity. I'm to live with a mindset to love others before myself. 
I'm to live in a mindset that says I will submit to the authority of Christ and I'm being willing to live and die for Christ because what this world has nothing compared to who Christ is. And so what, what will I do? I will continue to praise his name. I will continue to do good in the name of Christ and I will share with others in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we are being called to do at this point. And that shouldn't surprise us, right? When we look at the scriptures, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, when we want to boil down the word of God, there it is. I love God and I love others. What do I do, Adam? I don't know what to do. You love God and you love others. That's what it means to follow Christ. And so now he's going to close this, this part out where now he's going to offer some prayers for them. So starting in verse 18. He says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released, and if you arrive soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all of your leaders and God's people, those from Italy, and send your greetings. Grace be with you all. So he starts the prayer. He says, we're going to pray here. We're going to pray that we have a clear conscience, that we live honorable lives, lives that would honor who Jesus is day in and day out, that every aspect of what I do would conform to the will and the attitudes and the thoughts and the actions of Christ. And he says, pray that I may be restored to you soon. Now, we don't understand the circumstance, but something has been preventing Paul from getting, or not Paul, I'm sorry, but the author from getting back to these Christians. And he's praying that, that whatever is standing in his way would be relieved and that he would be able to be there to embrace them, to worship and gather with them again. And then I love how he says this. He says, may the God of peace who through, he lays out this, this big understanding. Where does peace come from? And he says, where, where does it come from? It comes through the blood of Christ. It, it comes through, through the eternal covenant that he made. Remember when he, when he spoke to Abraham and he said, through you, I will bless the world. Matter of fact, it goes even before that, that when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned. And what did God say? He said, I will crush the head of the serpent. That is where we find peace. A peace that came in the form of a, uh, of a baby, Jesus. And he walks this world and he's sinless and he's perfect. And then when his time came, God said, it is now time for you to go to the cross. And Jesus willingly gave up his life. And then he's resurrected 
to validate and prove everything that he said, that yes, I am God and I am your salvation. That is where we find peace in this world. There is no peace outside of knowing Jesus Christ. And then he goes on. And he says, not only does he offer us the peace, but he equips us and he works within us. That, that idea of equipping. God, God equips us to do what he wants us to do for his kingdom. It's this idea that he's going to put in order or prepare us or get us ready for a particular goal. Because see, here's what happens. When we choose to walk with Christ, we start to then live for Christ. Because see, I, I come to know that knowledge in my head and in my heart. I understand that I am a sinner. And I understand that God is the only way of salvation. And then as I continue to follow him and I continue to know my Lord more and more and more, what then happens is I come to understand more of who I am and who God is. And I become disgusted with the sin that lives within me. And the more that I recognize that I'm a sinner, the more I desire to live like Christ. And then what happens is the will of God becomes my will. I stop waking up every morning and saying, what can I do for myself? But I start waking up and saying, how can I live for Christ? That becomes my passion and my joy. That becomes my all-consuming life. And then God equips us for the ministry that he has for us. As the spirit is working within our hearts to transform us. And again, what is he calling us to do? To confess his name, to do good and to share with others. But some of us, what do we do? Ah, I'm not you, Adam. I'm not, a, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. I'm just a truck driver. I'm not you, Adam. I, I just work in IT. I just crunch numbers all day. I, I just have a small little store, Adam. I just work in a daycare. That's all I do. I just stay home with my kids, Adam. I'm not you. I'm not, I'm not a pastor. I, I can't do what you're calling me to do. Guys, if we continually identify ourselves by the external, we will never be the people that God wants us to be. Because we never define ourselves by the outside, but we define ourselves by the inside and who lives in there, which is the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit lives within you, then you are able to do whatever God is calling you to do. Too often we sell God short and we sell ourselves short. Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Guys, the reason why you can do what Christ is calling you to do, because it is Christ in you that is working out through you. So you're really not doing a whole lot of it. All you're doing is opening your life to submission to Christ and saying, Lord, show me your will and I will follow you wherever you call me to go. You don't have to worry about anything else because God's already taking care of it. 
So the next time you think that you can't, you got to stop yourself and tell Satan to get behind you and say, you know what? I can't, but Christ can. And what is he calling you again to boldly proclaim and confess the name of Jesus to do good to this world and to share with others? That is what he's calling you to do in a broken and fallen world. And let me just remind us, all of this that he's saying to these people is in the context of what is happening in the book of Hebrews. Trials, struggles, temptations, persecution, imprisonment, and death. He's calling us to live as Christ followers even in the face of evil. And he says, you know what I need you guys to be? I need you to stand toe-to-toe with it. And I need you to proclaim the truth. And I need you to be the righteousness and the light that this world so desperately needs. And when the world challenges you and wants to throw you in jail, wants to take your property, wants to take your life, you don't roll over and play dead. Instead, you say, if that's what you have to do, then that, that is what I will do for my Lord and Savior, because that is what he's called me to do. So to close this out, verse 22, again, he says, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. I've written you a short letter. He's saying, let me just remind you of this entire book. Let me just, let me just exhort you to follow this as I close this out. And what have we been talking about this entire book? The whole series is called Better Than. What is the exhortation? You live for Christ because there is no better life. That is why we do what we do as believers. Because following Christ is the only thing in this world that will save and redeem you. Following Christ is the only thing that can give you the eternal happiness Following Christ is the only life that matters in this world because it's a life that matters for all of eternity. So whatever you go through, whatever you struggle with, you continue to live for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we close out this book, again, what a a rich deposit it's been to dive back into the history, to, to look at the rituals, the ceremonies, the people, and see yet again that, God, all of this again was leading us towards you. And, Lord, as we finish this out, you've called us to, to be your people, to be people of holiness, righteousness, love, compassion. Lord, you have called us to confess your name. We know in a world that does not want to hear it, And we know that confessing your name in different parts of this world can be a death sentence. But we don't fear because we know the home that awaits us is better than the one in which we live now. Amen.